Lord God, I thank you that you have literally done everything, an entire creation, in order to make us feel your love. And Lord God, I pray that this morning you would cause us uh, to preach. I'm praying for us that we would love you with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and all of our strength. And Father, I pray especially for those that maybe are hearing uh, this for the first time as we've been preaching through the Revelation for a year and a half. God, I thank you that um, your word is really one, and all the pieces seem to be coming together now, but I pray that you would help people, that you would connect the dots in our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our souls, that you would be glorified in us, Lord God, in Jesus' name, as we preach, amen. For uh, the last uh, two, or last three messages from the Revelation, uh, going back from before Christmas, we've been looking at Revelation 21 and 22. Last week, we looked at this shocking picture at the end of, end of Scripture. The gates of heaven are always open. We saw that. The gates of heaven are always open, and there are people that are outside, and they don't go in. We conjectured that the doors are always open and they don't go in because the doors are always open. And you cannot pay and you must rest and you can no longer be a winner or a loser. You can no longer justify yourself. You can no longer hide. You can no longer be alone. You will lose your life and find it. You must surrender to love. Well, anyway, it appears that you can't go to heaven unless you want to, to go to heaven. So the question is not, hey, who wants to go to heaven? But how do you want what you don't want? I alluded to the answer last week. I think it has to do with the tree and how we understand the Bible and indeed all things, the nature of all things. For the last several hundred years, modern people in Western civilization have tended to believe that the cosmos is all that is, was, and ever will be. And so the cosmos has no beginning, no end, and no plot. And so if there's no plot, no beginning, no end, well then there's no story except for the story that we're writing. Ironically, physicists no longer think this way. However, most Christians, I've found, still tend to think this way. We have little faith in the beginning and the end and the plot, both the plot of all of space and time and the plot of the Bible. Most tend to think that the Bible is like a smattering of good advice, kind of like, you know, a self-help book with some knowledge of good and evil from this weird, diverse group of people. So you kind of just pick and choose what you like. But, but what if, what if the Bible is a story that God is actually telling through a weird, diverse group of people? Well, then it would have an end that is entirely anticipated from the beginning and everything in it would work to reveal the plot. And you'd pay attention. You'd pay attention to every little confusing detail in the story in order to get to the meaning at the end. A story. You see, a story, like a storehouse, stores meaning and it reveals people stories do far more than just give information 
If you're hiring an employee in order that you can use them, you want their resume. But if you want to know a person, well then you want to hear their story. Stories are incredibly powerful. Information can cause you to change your behavior, but a story can create in you a new desire, a new want, a new heart. A story can make a person want what they did not want before. You know that. You go to a movie and you come out, something changed, and you didn't try to change it. It changed you. Tell a child your story, and you can shape a heart in your own image for maybe like an entire lifetime. In Revelation 21, 22, we come to the end, for the end has come to us. And it turns out that the end is the beginning and everything in, in between. Since the foundation of the world, God has been telling a story, and it has a plot. The revelation is the revelation of the plot, the logos, Jesus. 22, uh, verse 1. Remember, John's looking at the New Jerusalem. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, this is the Young's literal translation of what we just read, trying to just take the Greek as exactly as you could, could take it. This is how he translates. And he, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, bright as crystal, going forth out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle or midst of its broad place and of the river on this side and on that is a tree of life. Now, modern translators try to clean up that, that sentence, but I think John is seeing something like this. He's seeing the tree of life, and from it, from it comes a river that turns into four. Uh, the tree of life is in the middle of the Garden of Eden. So we're now at the end and we're looking back at the, at the beginning. That tells us that the Bible and all things with it are just this one amazing, incredible story. As a kid and a, and a science geek, I used to always struggle with the end and even more with the beginning of, of Scripture. I mean, where was this silly garden? <laughs> And what's up with these weird trees? And why would God do something like that? But now I see that the beginning and the end are at the edge of space-time and eternity. So asking when and where is the Garden of Eden, or when and where is the New Jerusalem, is not like asking when and where is Cleveland, Ohio. The Garden is at the edge of when and where. So when and where could be any place that eternity touches time, including the depths of, like, your own soul. He sees a tree and a river that branches into rivers on this side and on that, just like the river in Eden that branched into four rivers on this side and that. He sees a tree and a river and more trees. He sees more trees, trees that are really the same tree. The, the tree of life. And now this is weird, and, and I can't draw it well, but in Genesis 2.10, this is what it says. The river flows out of Eden and waters the garden. 
out of Eden to water the garden. And there it becomes four rivers, the Euphrates, the Tigris, and the Gihon, uh, which most people think is probably the Nile, and then one other river that folks can't identify. In Ezekiel, the river starts small, and then it gets deeper and wider the further it, 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 it flows. And, and wherever it goes, it brings life. It brings healing. It brings life. In, in Daniel, the kingdom of the Son of Man strikes the earth like a meteor, destroying the beast, becoming a great mountain, and then it fills the whole world. See, it's like the whole world is destined to become a garden and a city on a mountain that is a temple and a bride and a body. I mean, that's quite a story, don't you think? Verse 2, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. A tree is a pretty amazing thing. You know, with its leaves, it captures or absorbs light, and it mixes it with dirt and poop, <laughs> making life and even fruit with seed in the fruit. With all the knowledge in the world, we cannot make one piece of fruit. And a tree makes fruit out of dirt and poop by mixing it with light. And God is light. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, and self-control. Each like a new desire we cannot create. But maybe, maybe a, a tree could create. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, not some nations or part of the nations, just the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, says God in Deuteronomy and in, in Galatians. Cursed. So a tree can make life or it can be used as an instrument of death. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They shall see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Then uh, verse 10, and remember we talked about all this last week. Verse 10, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time's at hand. Let the evildoer still do evil. And let the filthy still be filthy. <laughs> what a statement. You cannot make people want what they don't want. You cannot make people want to go to heaven. I mean, if we would have read this during the Crusades or the Inquisition, it might have saved a lot of trouble, you know? You cannot make anyone want to go to heaven, but maybe a story can. <laughs> Or the plot to a story can. Uh, uh, the logos, the, the word, like a seed planted in the dung and the dirt of the human heart. A, a word that grows like a tree. A word that's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of, of the heart. Let the evildoer still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. It's just what Paul wrote in Romans eleven thirty-two. 32. 
God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Christ repays our sin with his mercy. And the particular shape of our disobedience will determine the particular shape of his mercy, God's mercy in us. Mercy fills you like wine fills an empty earthen vessel or, or blood fills a blood vessel. The mercy uh, flows from a tree that is also the throne. On the throne stands a lamb, newly slain, according to the book of Hebrews, newly slain and yet slain from the foundation of the world, like once and for all, space, space and time. From the throne flows a river of life, eternal life, and the life is in the blood. Verse 13, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now, the Lord God said that at the start of the book, and now Jesus is saying it. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed, the beginning and the end. The blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Revelation 7, 14, we read about these saints coming out of the great tribulation that had washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Come reason with me, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Revelation 2, 7, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, um, to, the one, or to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of, of God. It was to Ephesus that, that Jesus said this, you've lost your first love. What happened to you, sweetheart? To conquer is to love because you want to. <laughs> to conquer is to love in freedom. Blessed, happy are those who wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, white as snow. Blessed, happy is snow white. That's, that's quite a story. And if you believe it's a story, right, and that the author knows what he, he's doing, well, it raises an obvious question. There's the garden, there's the tree of life. Um, where's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Genesis 2.9. The tree of the life, it actually says the tree of the life, was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the knowledge of Tob and Ra in in Hebrew, or the knowledge of beauty and corruption, good and evil. The tree of life and the tree of, of knowledge, you see, are both in the middle of the garden. On the sixth day of creation, when God makes Adam in his image, but now it, sees, it seems that John only sees the, the tree of life everywhere. But, but where's the tree of knowledge? Everything created by God is good, writes Paul, everything. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Wouldn't that include the tree of knowledge? Jesus just said, behold, I make all things new. It's done. It's finished. He's, he said that on a tree, actually. We just read, no longer will there be anything accursed. The day you eat of it, Dying, you will die, said God to Adam on the sixth day of creation. But John is no longer looking at the sixth day of creation. 
He's looking at the eternal seventh day when everything is good and it is finished. So where's the tree of knowledge and what is the tree of knowledge and how come no longer will or can anyone be accursed? Well, what does it mean to take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I think there are a million ways to describe it, but I think basically it means this. What does the queen want? She wants knowledge of the good, right? So she can judge whether or not she's good. And if she's not good, she can then make herself good, make herself tobe or beautiful. And you know the story, she doesn't make herself beautiful, but ugly. On the outside and on the inside, she actually orders the huntsman to bring her the heart of Snow White so that she can keep it in a box. In John 1, Jesus tells us that Jesus came from the bosom of the Father. See, Jesus is the heart of God. Well, if a person wants knowledge of good and evil, what do they want? Well, I mean, usually don't, isn't, isn't it something like this? They want a description of, of the good so they can judge if they themselves are good and then try to make themselves good. They want the law. They want God's law. And by that, I don't just mean the Ten Commandments. I mean any, any law. It could even be the, it could even be your score on the Enneagram. If that's the way you take it. Paul writes that when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. It's written on their hearts. It's all, it's all God's law or an attempt at capturing God's law uh, and then, you know, like capturing it on a, on a piece of paper or maybe a stone or, or putting it in a box or, or, or a coffin or an ark. In Hebrew, it's the same word. Well, the law isn't bad, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't bad. God made it. But the day you eat of it, you will die. To understand what it is and how it works, I think we can just read Romans chapter 7, substituting the knowledge of good and evil for the word law. Listen to this, okay? This is Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the knowledge of good and evil is sin? 
By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the knowledge of good and evil, I would have not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the knowledge of good and evil had not said, you shall not covet, but sin sees an opportunity through the commandment producing me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the knowledge of good and evil, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the knowledge of good and evil. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I, and I died. The very commandment. You know, Jesus said, the commandment of God is eternal life. It's in John 12. That's amazing. But listen to this sentence. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the knowledge of good and evil is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be, to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You know, the law revealed to Eve and that first Adam that something was not good. They didn't know that before. Before the fall, God had already said, it is not good for the Adam to be alone. Adam was alone, and he didn't even know what alone and not alone was. He had not the knowledge of good and evil. He did not know love. And love is life. Adam ate and died. Paul writes that we are dead. So when did we eat? Did you notice that uh, Paul wrote this? I was once alive apart from the law. So you see, there was a time before Paul had the knowledge of good and evil. In Deuteronomy 1, God tells the Israelites that their, their little children did not yet have the knowledge of good and evil. In Luke 2, Jesus is hanging on a tree. Remember this? And he cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That was on the sixth day of creation, sixth day of the week, a little bit after the sixth hour. They know not what they do. See, they, they did not have the knowledge of good and evil, but they were taking it, weren't they? John 15, Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for, for their sin. He exposed their sin. It's like Jesus is the good hanging on a tree, and each of us is taken from that tree, uh, but when did we take knowledge from, from th that tree? You know, I think I remember that day with each of my kids. Psychologists say that an infant sees himself or herself entirely mirrored in the eyes of his or her mother or father. They, they, in other words, the infant doesn't perceive a, a separation. I've told you that when my kids were little, they lived in the light of my eyes. They were literally the Ishon, the little man, the apple of my eye, reflected in my eyes. They saw themselves in my eyes, and they were perfectly at rest in who they are. Singing, dancing, playing. But in each of them, a day came when they stopped being simply so beautiful, and they began to ask this question. Am I beautiful? 
They looked in another mirror, and they began to judge themselves and make themselves and not uh, be quite so simply uh, beautiful. By, by trying, they, they began to judge themselves and everyone around them. They began to try and earn what they already had. My love. In Lewis's novel, Paralandra, Satan tempts Eve by showing her for the first time her face in a mirror. Oh, she cries out. What is it? I saw a face. Only your own face, beautiful one, said the unman. My face out there looking at me? What is it? The mysteries had all vanished from her face, writes Lewis. It was as easy to read as that of a man in a shelter when a bomb is coming. What is it? She repeated. It's called fear, said the mouth of the Satan, the accuser, and then grinned. When I take knowledge of the good and judge myself, you see, I create two selves. The self I think I should be and the self I am. I create a false self that I try to project to the world. I'm trying to even project that world myself to you like that right now, even as I'm preaching, asking, is this sermon good or not? But anyway, I try to project, I probably project that self to the world, and then, and then my true self becomes imprisoned in that false self, hiding in fig leaves, which I now think make me who I am. The law gives me knowledge of the good, but the law can't make me good. In fact, it makes me bad, dead, and eventually very, very ugly. The law can't make me good, but it can describe what the good might look like. So the law might say communion is good. <laughs> hey, communion is good. Drunkenness is bad. Or two glasses of wine, that's good. Three glasses of wine, that's bad. Two glasses of wine, that's heaven, that's communion. Three glasses of wine, you're going to burn it out forever. I mean, that's a little crazy making. And you see, if I need the law to be good, it just reveals that I'm not good, right? Because I don't freely choose the good. In fact, I must be constrained in order to choose the good, which is not good and not free. If I need the law to be good, it reveals that I'm not good, and it will make me hate the good, which is the law. I used to actually do this at Macaroni Grill, because maybe you remember this, where you can fill up your own wine glasses on the honor system, you know? I wouldn't let Susan or the waitress fill them up. I'd fill them up myself, and I would fill up two glasses to the very, very brim. The honor system made me dishonorable. I'd fill two glasses to the very brim, resenting the fact that I only had two glasses, and coveting three. But I would tell myself that I was being good while I was teaching my heart to be bad, to be ugly, to, to, to covet. See, maybe the difference between good and bad really isn't about how much wine you drink, but the way in which you drink it. What's that? Is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Maybe it depends on the way in which you take it, the way in which you drink it. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the good in flesh, and he is the judgment of God. So how do you take him? Is he like a standard that you try to live up to? 
I mean, is he a judgment that simply tells you when you're bad so that you can then try harder to be good? Is he like a WWJD bracelet? You know what I mean? So you look at the, the bracelet and say, what would Jesus do? And if you're not doing what Jesus would do, you try really hard to do what Jesus would do. You know, some people think that's what, that's what that is. Some people think it's, it's, it's a test. So if you don't make yourself in his image, well, you go to hell. And if you can make yourself in his image, well, then you go to heaven. Some people think it's a test to see if you can judge what's good and what's not good. So if you judge Jesus to be, to be good, that's called faith, and you get into heaven. And if you can't judge that he is good, well, then you're an idiot, and you're going to burn in hell forever and ever and ever. So is this the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or is this the tree of life? Maybe it depends on how you take it or receive it. So, so, what's, so what's the tree of life? The, the tree of knowledge is like a mirror, and I suspect that the tree of life is also like a mirror, but you look at it in a different way, asking a different set of questions, maybe wishing a different kind of wish, uh, like, a, like a new want, kind of like, like this. I'm wishing. Did you notice a difference? The queen wants to take the good and possess the good so that she can make herself good. Snow White wants the good to find her and love her. And then she would know the good because the good knew her. See, the queen thinks that the good is, is a thing, and so the face in the mirror, the face she sees is the face of death. Snow White thinks the good is a prince, not dead, but alive. Her mirror is hope that turns into his eyes, and she sees herself in his eyes as he looks back at her. The queen, though, is stuck on herself, right? Trapped alone within herself. Snow White has, well, she's lost herself. And then she's found. Snow White doesn't try to be good. She just is good. She's beautiful. For Snow White, the good is a life, the life who is her prince. The good is more than what the good does. The good is who the good is. The prince is the good, and the good is the prince. So if Snow White is good, how did she get the good inside of her? How could she get the good inside of her? She could kill him. 
and eat him. That'll be one way. But there is another way. In Scripture, there are two ways of knowing. One results in death, and the other results in babies. Now, I am not trying to be crass, bride of Christ. I'm trying to preach the gospel to foolish virgins and women that have been abused by men that said they were good, but they were actually evil. Well, Jesus is the good in flesh, and Jesus is the life. So anyway, we were asking, where is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what's the, what is the, the tree of, of life in the middle of the garden? You know, in his gospel, John is the one that goes out of his way to point out that Jesus was crucified in a garden, and that when Mary found him on Easter morning, she thought he was the gardener. And you might remember that Adam was a gardener, and Jesus is called the eschatos Adam, the ultimate Adam, and we are his bride. And I hope you remember what we saw last time. The garden is also the new Jerusalem. Uh, that is also a tabernacle and a temple that contains the throne, which is the law in a box or a coffin covered in mercy, on which stands uh, the slaughtered lamb. And you know that John actually pictures Jesus throughout his gospel as enthroned on a tree. John sees a tree, but John doesn't use the normal word for tree, dendron. He uses an abnormal word for tree that can be translated wood or gallows or cross. When Peter, Luke, and Paul all point out that Jesus was crucified and cursed on a tree, they use the same word, skulon. I don't hear many preachers talking uh, uh, this way, but I know that our ancestors thought this way because you can find all sorts of ancient pictures of Jesus crucified hanging on a tree. Tree, tree of life, maybe even sometimes a tree of, of knowledge. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus is the life. Do you know there's only one life? That means that your life is actually the life. How'd you get it? Jesus is the life, and he said, none is good but God alone. God is the good, and God in flesh is Jesus. Jesus is the good in, in flesh. So the tree of life looked like this. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked like, like this. Same thing. The good is God, and the evil is the absence of God. Or more, maybe it's taking the life of God like fruit, you know, just taking it, taking the life of God from, from a tree. Well, there are two trees in one spot, the middle of the garden, or there is one tree that looks like two. Whatever the case, it's the judgment of God. You know, we tend to think that God is two. Sometimes we call it love and justice, which we define then as not love. We think God is two, but maybe God is one and his judgment is one, and we are two. Maybe we, like, tried to judge the judgment and cut ourselves with the flaming sword on our way to the tree in the middle of the garden. The tree is the judgment. 
And now if you understand what I've been saying, you might be starting to, to panic because you might be thinking, oh crap, maybe, maybe it's too late. Maybe I was Snow White when I was a little kid, but I've been eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for like 50 years and I'm getting old and ugly. Yep. That's correct. God said the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. You live in a world under a curse, you will die, and your body will turn to dust. I thought you knew that already. <laughs> See, we get so freaked out at the idea that God would, you know, maybe smite people, burn their bodies, and they'd turn to dust. I thought we knew that already. You know, even Snow White didn't stay Snow White. Unable to trap Snow White's heart in a box, the evil queen actually made herself ugly in order to trick Snow White and, and tempt her with a poison apple. So rather than waiting for the one that she loves, the queen tempts Snow White to seize control of the one she loves. You see, the magic fruit works just like her magic mirror. It gives her power over love. Or at least that's the lie. This is no ordinary apple. It's a magic wishing apple. A wishing apple? Yes. One bite and all your dreams will come true. Really? Yes, girlie. Now, make a wish. And take a bite. Now, you can't blame Snow White because she was an idiot. You can't blame uh, Snow White, and, and uh, you really can't blame my children because <laughs> they were idiots. I mean, don't be surprised. You, you already knew that. All little children are idiots, innocent, adorable idiots. A one-year-old, two-year-old, they're, they're adorable idiots. We love them and we don't want them to suffer pain, but we also want them to grow up, right? And choose love in freedom. We want them to know the good and freely choose the good. We want them to learn to love, even though the lesson may hurt like hell and last an entire lifetime. You can't blame Snow White and two-year-olds because they don't know any better, and you really can't blame Eve and that first Adam because they didn't know any better. That's the crazy part about the story. They didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. So when God says, the day you eat of it, die and you will die, how are they to know that the Word of God is good? So that they can trust the Word of God who is good and find uh, their helper. And when God said it's not good for Ha-Adam, that is humanity, to be alone, how are they to know that it's not good to be alone? How could they recognize their helper and want their helper who is the good and is the life and is standing right next to them in the garden? You know, Snow White wishes for what she already has but doesn't know that she has the love of her prince. And that he will carry me away to his castle where we will live happily ever after. Fine, fine. Now take a bite. Oh, I feel strange. Our breath will still. Our blood congeal. 
in the Bible. It's a little unclear as to whether eating of the fruit put Eve to sleep or whether she was already asleep because already God had put them to sleep, put the Adam to sleep to teach them a lesson, remember? God put the Adam to sleep and made, made Adam male and female to teach us all about Christ and the church, about himself and us, about the eschatos, Adam and his, his, his bride. He put us to sleep to perform a surgery in order to help us find our helper. It was heart surgery. Now you may say, oh, okay, humanity is the bride. I see her there in the garden, Adam and Eve in the garden, and God in flesh is the groom, the helper, but, but, but where is our helper? Well, do you see? I think he's hanging on this tree. I think he's hanging on this tree, and this tree is the edge of time and eternity. the judgment of God. John already told us that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. It means that God has been telling one story all along, and stories have the power to create in people a new desire, a new heart. Last time we saw that you can't go to heaven unless you want to go to heaven, so the question is not do you want to go to heaven, but how can you want what you don't want? How can you want to go to heaven? Well, maybe someone needs to tell you a story. Or better yet, write you into their story. And I think that's just what the Revelation and the Bible and all of space and time is, is about. We took the knowledge of good from the tree and so took the life from the tree. Everything got ugly for the good died and we died. In fact, God kicked us out of the garden so that we would, we would die and wouldn't take again from the tree of life and live forever. Forever feeding on the life the way that the evil queen fed on Snow White. Uh, the way that a zombie feeds on body broken and a vampire feeds on bloodshed, feeding and feeding and feeding, never dying and never living. He kicked us out of the garden and subjected or had subjected to creation to, to futility, according to Paul. He consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He put two naked idiots in a garden with a talking snake, a terrible tree, in order that he might tell us the story of redemption and create within us his very own heart. He cast us into outer darkness so that in the darkness his light might shine and we might finally see it. So that we, he cast us out so that we might nail his heart to a tree and see that he bleeds a river of of relentless love that is eternal life so that we might take his life and he might give his life that we would come to know that he is good and forever chooses the good and freedom that we might love as he has always loved us. You see, the cross was never plan B. It was always plan A. Jesus did not die because you made a bad decision. Jesus died so that you would begin to make a good decision or he would make a good decision in you. God's love is not dependent on our free will. Our good free will is dependent on the relentless love of God. The cross is not what God needs in order to love us. The cross is what we need in order to love God. God's judgment does not change, but we change because of God's judgment.
The tree in the garden does not change. But we change uh, because of the tree. We die with him and we rise with him, writes Paul. The cross reveals the judgment of God and it creates the judgment of God in us. Our judgment is to take the life, possess the life, which is to damn the life. The blood congeals. Did you hear the evil queen? The blood congeals. That's our judgment, to take the life, possess the life, damn the life. God's judgment is to give the life, which creates a river of life, which brings uh, all creation to life. In the garden, we took the life, damned the life, and damned ourselves. On the cross, God revealed that the life we took had always been given. In fact, it had been forgiven from the foundation of the world. And now, Revelation 22, we're back at the garden. And to enter the garden is to return the life that you stole from the tree. It is to surrender the life because you want to surrender uh, the life. Jesus is the will to surrender your life. Jesus is the will to love. To enter is to lose your life and find it. It's to love as you have been loved, to love in freedom. It's a, a new and eternal desire, a new want, a new will, a free will. It's the will of God in you. It's Jesus in you, his bride, his temple, his body. It's Jesus in you and you in him, the body of Christ. And now remember what John and Ezekiel saw? The river of life flowing from the throne? That's where the judgment comes from, right? The throne on which stands a slaughtered lamb who is the heart of God, which is also a tree that is the revelation of God who is the one who loves in absolute freedom. He sees the river of life flowing from the throne and, and all the Bible is teaching us the life is in the blood. And so he sees something like, like this. Every tree is a tree of life you see, every tree is a decision to love. A decision from the throne of God, which is the temple of God, well, and also the human soul. So John sees something like this, which I hope reminds you of this, and most certainly reminds you of this. You see, a soul that damns the life is a vessel of wrath, but a soul that surrenders the life is a vessel of mercy. It's a blood vessel. It constantly loses its life and finds it. Why? Because God just continually gives life. It constantly loses its life and finds it, for it channels a river of life that flows from the throne and throughout all of creation. When one person loves in, in a world that does not love, what does it look like? A man hanging on a tree. And when two people love in a covenant of love, what does it look like? A marriage or maybe even a honeymoon. And when everybody loves, what does it look like? The New Jerusalem. A party. A happy body. A happy dancing body. It looks like the bride, the body of the will of God, who is God and the word of God. And, and now in case you're still thinking, but, but, but Peter, it's too late. I've become the evil queen. Well, don't you understand? We've all become the evil queen. Or we've dreamt that we are the evil queen. 
And so every believer is like Snow White trapped in a bad dream, the dream of her own sovereignty, the dream that she could conquer love when heaven is to be conquered by love, the dream that she is the evil sovereign, the evil queen. When Snow White bites the apple, she falls into the sleep of death, and when we took the fruit, we fell into the sleep of death, or dreamed that we were dead. We sleep until the prince enters our nightmare and gives us a kiss, waking us from death and giving us the light of his life. Seven Dwarves. See, that's not just a description of something that happened once in a garden. That's a description of what will happen and may in some cases has already happened to every moment in your space and time and might be happening right now even as you listen to the story. With every breath you take, and every move you make, you're either looking in this mirror, trying to justify yourself, or you're looking in this mirror, having forgotten yourself and having found yourself in him. <laughs> hey, <laughs> there's a tree, and there's a mirror. And the Word of God took the bread and broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, Well, this is the covenant in my blood. Cup of wine. Is it good or evil? It's good. Actually, it's the good and the life. It is the judgment of God. Here's the tree, here's the throne, and here's the judgment. The judgment doesn't change. But how do you take it? Now, that could be evil or good. If you take it as a possession with which you judge yourself and you judge your neighbor, well, then 
You're the judge, aren't you? You're the evil queen. If you receive it as a gift, the love of God poured out for you, well, then the doors of your kingdom are open. The doors of the kingdom are open, and the doors of your kingdom swing open. You're not the judge. You're Snow White, and you're beautiful. The truth is, right now, you're both. So go ahead and drink it. Why? Because God's judgment is stronger than your judgment. It will destroy the evil queen. The heart of God will rise from the dead and burst out of the box like that veil in the temple rip from the top to the bottom. The blood will burn the evil queen and reduce her to dust and the blood will liberate Snow White. The blood will purify Snow White. That's what blood does in a body. It carries away impurities, decay, and death, and, and what does it do? It brings healing. It brings life. Jesus is the life. I think Jesus is the heart of God given to you. Everything is created by God and sanctified when it's received with thanksgiving. So, Lord Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for everything. And you make all things new. Thank you that you overcame. And that's how we overcome. In Jesus' name, amen. You saw the picture. Now you're a tree of life. Yeah, and fruit starts to grow. And don't be surprised if people come along and just yank the fruit from the tree and eat it and don't even say thank you. That's part of the program. Those people are not your mirror. That's, that's your mirror. For 57 years, or maybe probably about 55 or 56, I've been asking myself this question, am I good, am I good, am I good, am I good? And it's just about killed me. It's made me dead and ugly. So you can spend your life asking yourself that question, am I good, am I good, am I good? Just drop it and just look at the one who is good and see him looking back at you. And that's how you're made in his image. But you don't have to worry about that. He's the creator, not you. Just look at him. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.